Good morning, church. It's great to see you all this morning and great to see, well, I can't see you if you're joining online, uh, but you can see me. Um, And this morning we are going through the book of Luke and we're going to continue to do that as we look at the life of Jesus leading up uh, to Easter. Before we get to that, I want to share with you that I am a bit of a Star Wars fan. I'm a little bit, uh, I'm still a little bit confused. I'm not that much of a Star Wars fan that I really know lots about it, but I'm still a bit confused about what order they're made in. Um, But Star Wars Episode 6, which apparently is the third one, Dave had to confirm with me, uh, The Return of the Jedi, there's this famous line, Admiral Akbar uh, is this veteran commander of the Resistance, and he has this famous line that says, it's a trap, Um, there it is on the screen, And, uh, you know, when their fleet is surrounded, um, it's a trap. That's my my segue into this morning's passage for us. Um, Because there's people setting traps uh, for Jesus um, as we look into this passage. They're trying to discredit him. They're trying to um, make people think that he's not who he says he is. So Jesus has just fielded a question about paying taxes, and Jesus has astonished them with his answer. And so now there's another trap being set. Uh, It's a group of Sadducees, these religious rulers at the time, who try to set a trap for Jesus. This isn't with a a fleet of spaceships, while that would be rather entertaining, um, but with a question that seems to have an impossible answer. So this morning, I want to first look at the question. And then after that, we'll unpack a bit of Jesus' answer. So if you've got your Bibles there, um, stay open to uh, Luke 20, and we're going to read from verse 27 to 33. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children. The man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Since the seven were married to her. The passage is in this context of the religious elite trying to trap Jesus into saying something that would discredit him. With Jesus first silencing the Pharisees with his wise answers, other main groups, the other main religious group, the Sadducees, would have a crack at it. Now, the Sadducees were not a popular group among the Hebrew people. They had held on to power by cooperating with the Romans. In essence, they were working for the enemy, you know, the the Romans who were taxing the Hebrews and ruling them. Think of it, it's almost like if Ukrainians started to work for the Russians to gain privileged positions. It's a little bit like that, how the other Ukrainians would feel towards them. There would be be a lot of hatred and a lot of um, frustration towards being sold out their own people. Um, So the Sadducees, they don't like Jesus because if he does become this ruler... This, who might overthrow the Romans, as everyone was expecting, 
their positions, their comforts, their authority would go as the Roman rule would go. So they don't want to see Jesus uh, take up a position of authority. So they come to Jesus to trap him. They ask him a question. And in their minds, it has an impossible answer, trying to force Jesus to concede on either the doctrine of resurrection or on the law of Moses. So there's this Old Testament law that requires a brother to marry a childless widow in order that the family line would continue. And the widow gets looked after. And you can find that uh, in Genesis 38.8 and Deuteronomy 25.5 if that interests you. But So a woman was to marry seven brothers in the question. In the afterlife, whose wife would she be? Because according to the law, she can only have one. And this is a completely theoretical question. Because firstly, the Sadducees didn't even believe in the resurrection. And secondly... In the New Testament times, the customs of a brother taking in the widow was not really practiced anymore, let alone it happening seven times. This is not a genuine question. It's not a real heartfelt question. They didn't really want to know. It was a question designed to trap Jesus. And the Sadducees are attempting to silence him with a question that seems, in their mind, to have no answer. She can't be married to all seven of them in the resurrection because that goes against the law. Therefore, in their minds, the resurrection, the afterlife, heaven, it's not real. This life on earth, that's all it is. And let's look at how Jesus responds in verse 34. Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead, will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. So in Jesus' reply, there are kind of two parts to it. The first part deals with the Sadducees' attempt to get Jesus to compromise on the law of Moses. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And Jesus responds, Well, in this age, in our lives, yes, we marry, but in the age to come... In the afterlife, when our bodies are raised from the dead, there won't be any marriage. Why? Because there's not going to be any need for it, as there won't be any death. So there won't be need for procreation. In that way, you know, we'll share some angelic characteristics in our resurrected bodies. We don't become angels, but there are aspects where we'll be like them. The second part deals with the Sadducees did disbelief in the resurrection of the dead. The idea that the afterlife was not explicitly outlined in the Old Testament scriptures. It was quite implicit. So Jesus says, you know the part with the burning bush, like there's no chapters or verses in the Bible, in the scriptures yet. Uh, so he's kind of referring to Exodus. Oh, you know that part? Uh, and, and Jesus says, Moses called 
the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. See, Moses wouldn't have called God that if they were just simply dead. It would make no sense. It would make no sense to call God that unless God was still their God, even many years later, even though they had died on earth. Well, of course they were dead, but in a sense they must be alive somewhere else. And so Jesus ends by saying, no one dies from God's perspective. From our perspective, people die, yes. We lose relationship with them. But to God, everyone is still alive. Death doesn't cut us off from God. So for those of us who fear death, or where death seems to be just around the corner, or for those of us who have recently lost loved ones, hold on to this, that while death cuts us off from friends and family, our connection to this place and to this time, death will not cut you off from God. And death has not cut off your loved ones. God. So this morning I want to focus on three things that I think really stand out to me from this passage. Firstly, I think that Jesus really challenges our view of marriage. And it might catch us a little bit off guard that he's saying marriage will end. And I think our culture is like weirdly obsessed with marriage, but in a totally paradoxical way. First, First way is that we kind of make marriage out to be more than it should. Where marriage and by our extension our family and and by our extension our sex life, it becomes essential to our sense of significance. Where marriage is seen as as this ultimate path uh, to fulfillment. That's one way our culture is weirdly obsessed with it. The second way is that we make marriage out to be less than what it should be. Marriage between a man and woman is just this outdated tradition that has some legal benefits, and that's about it. It's been reduced to a commitment until you feel like it. And divorce and remarriage is just to be expected, really. You know, what are the chances your first marriage will work out? You know, how are we to know? You know, our culture we live in holds these two contradictory values. So as we look at how Jesus talks about marriage... Hopefully we can gain a bit of God's perspective on it. So if marriage is only temporary, why does it matter? Why does it matter to God that it's between one man and one woman, that it's a covenant that's through sickness and through health, through, for richer, for poorer? Why does it matter? Why does it matter that it's a commitment till death do us part? It's because marriage is a foreshadowing, a prelude. It's a taste of the joy and intimacy found primarily in God. Those of you who are of about the age of maybe 30 and older uh, would remember, possibly remember, having dial-up internet. You know, you would uh, go pick up the phone and you'd hear this sound. And then you'd yell out, get off the internet, I need to make a phone call. And, and you'd, you'd wait minutes and minutes for a single web page to load, minutes to download your emails. And it's so slow now, uh, it's so slow then, but now 
We have like this high speed optical fiber, NBN broadband, and Australia's internet is not great compared to the rest of the world, but it's actually so much better when we compare it to dial up. You know, Clyde can stream her cheesy Christmas movies while I can stream the English Premier League and we can both scroll Facebook on our phones and watch videos all at the same time. The internet's so great now. Or, or think about uh, the first car you ever owned or drove. You know, maybe it was an EJ Holden or a Toyota Corona or a Datsun 1200. Those cars are actually all way too old for me, but maybe not for you guys. But think of your first car. You know, it was probably amazing when you got it. You were like, this is the best. You know, you probably have to pump the brakes a few times to get it to stop. The suspension was a little bit wobbly, so you'd hit a bump and then you'd just keep bouncing. Um, there's no safety features. Lucky to have seat belts. Certainly no airbags or crumple zones. The fuel economy was shot. But now compare that to a Tesla Model S. You know, it's all electric. You don't even have to worry about petrol prices. It's instant power and torque. Probably feels like you're riding on a cloud. It even comes with autopilot. This is ridiculous. I can't believe it. Where it steers, brakes, and accelerates by itself. That's crazy. These cars are just worlds apart. Like, our internet is so much better than it was 15 years ago. Cars are so much better now than they were 40 years ago. You know, when they first came out, they were great. It was amazing, new technology. But dial-up internet's been superseded. Petrol cars are being superseded with cars with autopilot. You know, marriage is great now, but it will be superseded by something better in the age to come. Even the best and only the best parts of marriage will be infinitely superseded by the joy and intimacy of being face-to-face -face with God. Earthly marriage is supposed to point us to something bigger and greater than itself. And the book of Revelation refers to the church as the bride of Christ. That means that a marriage relationship points to Jesus' relationship to the church. And that's why it'll end. And I think that has three major implications for us. One, it means that singleness is no disadvantage. Singleness is no disadvantage. The fullness of God's eternal joy are available to singles because it's not found in an earthly relationship, but a heavenly one with God. Singleness is not a second-rate life. So if you're married... Treat singles in the way that reflects this. And so fellowship with them. The second is that marriage is not the ultimate. Our partners, or by extension our kids or sex life, cannot and, and should not be where we find or seek to find ultimate joy and intimacy. We cannot idolize our spouses. Only God can bear the full weight of our desire for love and intimacy. Yes, marriage is where love is, and intimacy is to be enjoyed and nurtured, but we cannot fully abandon ourselves to another human being and wholly depend on others for our ultimate intimacy because the need is too great. We're too needy. 
No one person or a group of people can fulfill our need for intimacy. Only God can. Only God can. It also means that if your experience of marriage has not been good, for whatever reason, maybe it ended not on your terms, or maybe there was infidelity or abuse, or for whatever reason, there's a greater love available to you. A greater love and intimacy found in God. And the third thing is that marriage does have value. Even though it's temporary, it's still important. This is because of what it represents. God's relationship with his people and by whom it's ordained, by God. In the age of the resurrection, there's going to be plenty of important and good things that will become obsolete. For example, take Revelation 21, 23. It says, the city has no need of a sun to shine on it, for the glory of God gives light. So the sun becomes obsolete in the age to come. Does that mean the sun is no longer important now? No, not at all. It gives life to every single thing on earth. It's very important. But the sun is a foreshadowing of the light of God. In the age to come, it will become obsolete. So marriage still has value now. So my challenge for us this morning is, what, have you been, what value have you been placing on marriage? Are you idolizing it? Are you minimizing it? The second thing that stands out to, uh, to me is that Jesus challenges our understanding of heaven. Jesus is making the distinction that life in the age to come isn't just simple continuation of how life is now. There's going to be a time when Jesus returns to bring the fullness of God's kingdom to earth and all of God's children will be raised from the dead. Heaven will be worth the wait. Heaven will be worth it. The new age where heaven and earth come together, God dwells on earth with his people, will be radically different than the age we live in now. Now, the Bible doesn't describe heaven like just souls floating in the clouds, reduced to just like a boring eternal, eternal existence. That's not how the Bible speaks about it. The new age will be heaven on earth, not heaven devoid of earth. So there will be aspects of our lives that will be similar. We will have bodies free and perfect from the corruption of sin. But God is actually redeeming the whole creation, not just humanity. And Paul tells us in Romans 8:22 that creation groans like a woman in labor pains, eagerly awaiting the new creation. Those of you who are parents will know that exact feeling of expectation that Paul is talking about, of waiting for for birth. That moment where when contractions start or that moment when the waters break. And there's that wonderful joy and hope that, you know, you're going to meet your new baby in just a matter of hours. But those next few hours are no walk in the park. Even in the off chance that the entire thing goes smoothly, it's still full of pain and suffering. It's both agonizing and beautiful. And that's why Paul precedes this in Romans 8 with, 
I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in the resurrection. You know, you never meet a mother who says, my birth was horrible, nothing went to plan, but it wasn't worth it for my child. No mother says that. Every mother says the suffering of birth was not worth comparing to the joy that it was holding my baby in my arms for the first time. This is the age that we live in. It's in spiritual labor pains, with wars, with pandemics, with floods, and our own personal sufferings. But the eternal joy, the infinite intimacy, the everlasting glory in the resurrection will not be worth comparison, worthy of comparison. So the age of the resurrection from the dead is not merely this extension of the current age. And it's not completely disconnected either. But it'll be nothing like we've ever experienced. No more pain, no more suffering, no more tears. But it's not just a removal of the worst from our world. It's also an improvement on the best in our world. You know, and I know that there are many in our church who are going through intense challenges and sufferings today. And Paul goes on to explain in Romans 8 that we have the Spirit to help us now as we wait, as we hold on to the hope of the new age. So today, lean into the Spirit of God. Because our suffering is temporary, but our delight and our relationship with God will be eternal, is eternal. And that's what we have to look forward to. And that's what's in front of us as followers of Jesus. But what are its implications for today? Jesus says that those who will be raised from the dead in the age to come are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. So what does it mean to be children of the resurrection? Let's go back to Romans 8, because I think Paul can help clarify this for us. It says, I'm going to read Romans 8. 8 to 13. It says, Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. Verse 10. If, but if Christ is in you, then even through your body is subject to death because of sin. The Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. But it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if By the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Paul is saying that we might not have the fullness of the resurrected bodies, but we do have the Spirit of the resurrected Christ. Even though our body is subject to death, the Spirit gives life. So we are to live not according to the the flesh, not according to the world, 
but according to the Spirit. While in the age to come, everything is going to change for the good. And while we wait, it's, we're waiting in it's this present age and it's like a woman in labor pains. And we've undergone and are undergoing our redemption. Just like marriage is the foretaste of, our, of intimate relationship with Christ and the church, so too our lives are to be a testimony of what is to come in the age of the resurrection of the dead. Our lives are not to be set on the desires of the flesh, just like the rest of the world, but set on the things of the Spirit. So are we as a church setting our minds on the things of the Spirit or on the things of the flesh? Are we fulfilling our obligation as children of the resurrection? You know, when we meet together for, for church service or we meet in an AGM or, or in a small group or connect group throughout the week, is it about me, what I can get out of it, who is noticing me, who is fulfilling my needs? Is it about me or is it about God, about glorifying him as we seek to bless others? Are we fulfilling our obligation as children of the resurrection to love others like Christ loves the church. In our workplaces or schools or with our neighbours, are we shining the light of Christ like a lamp on a lampstand, giving light to the whole room, like a city on a hill where people can see it for miles? Or have we hidden our light? Have we put it under a bed? Are we fulfilling our obligation as children of the resurrection to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them? Are we pursuing something other than God as our purpose and our identity? Is it the attraction of wealth, power, sex that's taking over our lives? Are we fulfilling our obligation as children of the resurrection to live by the Spirit? And to put the, to death the sin in us. If you believe in Jesus, if you've repented of your sin and turned and trusted in him, you have been given the Holy Spirit. And we are God's children, children of the resurrection. And as Paul says, we have an obligation to live like it. Recently, let me close with this story. Recently, I heard of a story of a man who had chronic liver problems his whole life. From birth, he had a condition called biliary atresia. I don't know if I pronounced that right. I'm no doctor. Uh, which causes a blockage uh, in the ducts that carry bile from the liver to the gallbladder. And despite many procedures and treatments, his, his liver as a child never developed properly. He had a relatively normal childhood, uh, until he started to notice his skin going yellow and his condition began to worsen. And after countless hours of sitting in the cold, fluorescent lights of doctors' rooms and, and hospital waiting rooms, he received the news that he was waiting for his whole life. It had finally come. His liver was failing. He needed a transplant. And he was put on the waiting list straight away. 
He was on his lunch break at work when he got the call from the doctor saying, we found you a donor. We have a new liver for you. Come in right away. And you can imagine the relief, the newfound hope and joy that's been restored in him. He went and had the operation, the transplant, and it was a success. He had this new lease on life. But then not long after, things started to turn for the worst. But it wasn't his health. His, his, the, the, the liver was doing great. But it was his personal life. He split with his partner. He lost a close friend and he lost his job all within months. And to numb the pain, he turned to alcohol. Night after night, he drank and drank until he couldn't drink anymore. And it wasn't long until he ended back in hospital with alcohol poisoning. And it was discovered that his new liver was now also failing. And he was devastated, but not really surprised. He was given this gift of a new liver, but he had not fulfilled his obligation as a recipient of an organ transplant. As followers of Jesus, who have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, we have an obligation to live according to the Spirit, to live in ways that is reflective of our identity. This does not mean perfection, not in this age at least, but it does mean an open heart and an open mind to growth and a willingness to submit to Christ in our lives because we are God's children and children of the resurrection. We have an eternal hope, an eternal joy that no circumstance, not even death, can take from us. For Jesus says, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that nothing can separate us from your love. Nothing, no height, nor depth, nor, nor rulers, nor powers, nothing can separate us from your love. Nothing in all creation can cut us off from you. And God, we thank you for your deep love for us. And we 